this evening is that it creates a band of crucified followers. Just to go back and remind us of what grace is just for a few moments, here are a, simple, a few simple definitions that you've probably heard at least on more than one occasion. The first one is that grace is just simply unmerited favor. You've got something that you didn't earn. You don't deserve it. There's nothing that you did to merit it. You, there's nothing that you did to warrant it other than the fact that the giver of the grace, the giver of this gift, decided to bestow upon you this kindness. One man said it like this, if you were $10 million in debt and you had somebody come along and there was no way that you were going to be able to get out of debt on your own, somebody came along and what they did was they wrote you a check for $10 million and slid it across the table and said, take this down to the bank, you can cash it or you can go ahead and pay off your debt. And so you do that, you take that check down to the bank and you go and you pay off that debt. There's nothing for the rest of your life that you're going to go and say, guess what? I got out of debt. <laughs> it was by my own ingenuity. It was because of my own goodness that I got out of that debt. It's not. All the glory and all the praise is due the one who wrote that check for you in the first place, the one that got you out of that debt to begin with. When we think about sin, the fact that sin creates a debt in God's eyes, a debt of which blood of bulls and goats cannot pay for the book of Hebrews, a debt of which you and I are helpless and powerless to do anything about, Romans chapter 5, we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Now we have this debt that's been erased and been paid. We don't walk around with a haughty attitude looking around and looking down on other people and saying, it was because of my own goodness that Christ saved me. It was not. We were without strength. We were ungodly. We were sinners. There was nothing that we could do to get out of that. Grace is simply unmerited favor. We use this in a sermon illustration or sermon series several, uh, well, months ago now, is that grace is simply God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus paid it all. Gone is the debt of sin that I have because of the blood of Christ, because he was the one that paid that debt for me. Another definition of grace you might have heard is grace is simply favor bestowed when wrath was owed. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this and the fact that we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also you all once walked in the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of our mind and were by nature Paul would say, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, children of wrath, just like the others. We lived, we were dead under the penalty of God's wrath. But because of God's rich love and because of his mercy, he brought us up out of that miry pit. And he put us seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's the point of Ephesians. This is where we are. We have this standing that we don't deserve, and God gave us that through his blood, through Christ's blood. What's so amazing about grace is that it puts us seated with Christ in the heavenly. But here's the question we want to consider from Matthew chapter 16 this evening. A band of crucified followers, why don't people follow Jesus? Why don't people follow Jesus when you're looking at the basest reason, at the, when you strip away all the excuses, when you strip away everything else, what is it about people that make them choose not to follow Jesus? 
Let's start with that, and then we'll talk about the amazing grace that creates a band of crucified followers. Begin at the very beginning of this chapter, just for a few moments this evening, and here's the question we want to ask. What is it that keeps people from God's grace? Look at verses 1 through 4 as we discuss this first one, and let's talk about it in terms of an abundance of pride. What keeps people from God's grace, what keeps them from following Jesus, is an abundance of pride. Matthew chapter 16, at the very beginning, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested him, and asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it'll be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and he departed. Why did they not follow him? Why in verse 4 did he leave from them? It was because of their pride. Now you say, well, that's quite a bit of, uh, uh, that's quite a statement. But consider just for a few moments, just from the book of Matthew, what they'd already seen. What had they seen Jesus do? What were the occasions where they were present, where they had an opportunity to see what Christ was capable of? Flip back just a few pages to Matthew chapter 9. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 3 through 7. Jesus sitting there with a paralytic, there's a man lying there on a bed, and Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven unto you. And at once the scribes, these same people who are here, these scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Well, you know what Jesus is going to do on this occasion. He's going to take an, an occasion to prove to them beyond all doubt that he is the Son of God, that he has the power on earth to forgive sins, Mark chapter 2. And as he goes through and he begins to talk to them, he says, verse 5, which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to a paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. What did the man do? He got up, he took up his bed, and he went to his house. Multitudes saw this, they marveled, and they glorified God, who had given such power to men. Jesus is obviously a man of power. Look in the same chapter, verses 32 to 34. And they went out, behold, they brought a man to him, uh, to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. When the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and multitudes marveled, saying, It has never seen like this in Israel. Note what the Pharisees say. I kind of get the picture of them mumbling this under their breath. He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Didn't really confront them at that time, but he will a little bit later. Flip over to Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12, they've seen the lame man walk, they've seen the demons being cast out. Matthew 12, verses 10 through 14, here's a man on the Sabbath who has a withered hand. And as they begin to watch to see whether he's going to heal this man, they begin to look at him and verse 11, Jesus says, what man is there among you as one sheep and it falls on a pin on a Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value than a, a man than a sheep, therefore... It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. It was restored as a whole. Verse 14, then the Pharisees plotted against him how they might destroy him. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? 
look further down in the chapter. Here's another demon-possessed man, verse 22. There was one who brought to him who's demon-possessed, blind and mute. He healed them so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. The multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, here, it's a little bit more obvious, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And Jesus would go on a discourse to destroy that line of thinking and destroy that, that arrogance of them. And now, jump back to verse 16, chapter 16. Here they are one more time, and what are they asking for? Teacher, we want to know that you're from God. What sign are you going to do to prove that to us? What more could he have done? There was a pride problem that these people had to where they couldn't see the forest for the trees. They're too busy looking at the individual aspects of each miracle that they cannot understand, they cannot see the entire picture of the picture that the miracles paint. And so as they go through, they continually ask for signs. Wasn't that the case that even on the cross that they were passing by and wagging their heads and say, you who said you're going to destroy the temple and build it back in three days, come down from the cross and then we'll believe. Get yourself down from there and surely we'll believe. Pride. Pride. There's a danger that each one of us has, and it's a blind spot called pride. Paul would talk about it in terms of the eyes of certain individuals and people being blinded by the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 talks about from the very beginning, from the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen by the things that are made, but there are some people who are so prideful that they will not see the forest for the trees. Instead, they just say, well, if God was here, he would reveal himself. And yet the psalmist said, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And how we can't see what is obviously so clear. Instead, these people are just looking for one more sign. One more sign. One more sign. Their message to Christ is, he doesn't have the power to change my life. He doesn't have the power to make a difference. I don't need what he has to offer. It said that, well, my brother and I, when we were younger, uh, my father live, uh, lived and worked in downtown, uh, downtown Denver, and my brother and I would often go and wander the streets of downtown Denver while my dad was working, and this was uh, about the time of the Timothy McVeigh trial, and so my brother and I went in, and we actually uh, sat through some of those proceedings. It said that as Timothy McVeigh's execution, uh, he handed out, he didn't have any final words, but what he did was he handed out a handwritten statement distributed, which included portions of an old poem called Invictus. And some of those lines were, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There's pride that keeps a sinner from acknowledging he's wrong. And sometimes it is that pride keeps us from following Jesus like we ought to. Number two, what keeps people from following God's grace? The lack of trust. A lack of trust. 
Continue on there in Matthew 16. Let's read it, please, together. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we've taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason about this amongst yourselves because you brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you didn't understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And then they understood that he didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is one of those statements and one of those accounts in my mind that's so clear and so vivid. Getting all the disciples in the boat, and as they crossed over to the other side, and they begin to look around. Where's all the, where's all the bread we, we had left over? Andrew, did you get it? No, I didn't get it. Thomas, did you get it? No, I didn't get it. Peter, Peter. You're the Lord's favorite. Where's, uh, where's all the bread that, we've, that we got that we gathered up from the, uh, from the miracle of feeding the, the loaves and the fish? I didn't get it. <sighs> now Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why did he say that? It's because we didn't bring any bread. You forgot the bread. No, I didn't. You forgot it. Well, why didn't you get it? It was sitting right there on the couch. <laughs> and Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, knowing what they're possibly discussing, says, don't you remember? The pattern of the disciples is interesting because they see a miracle, they appreciate the miracle, but then they forget the miracle in a lot of cases, don't they? And you think about them seeing the sign and believing the sign and then forgetting the sign and how much that is like well, they're forgetful like us. When a lack of trust begins, what's going to happen is that that lack of trust is going to be there, and you know what's going to rush to fill that vacuum? Pride. We're back to point number one. When we begin to have a lack of trust in Christ, you know what's going to fill that? Well, I got this. Well, it's your fault. I know it's not my fault that we forgot to bring the bread. I know it's your fault that you did this and you didn't do this and you didn't because we're trying to save face. We're trying to make ourselves look good. We're trying to feel good about ourselves. And that's exactly what it is. It's pride. When what Jesus wants of these people and what he wants so desperately of us who desire to be a band of crucified people who trust fully in his grace is not for us to say, I got this, but I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. They forgot the one that they had in the boat was the one that was able to make enough to feed multitudes out of a little boy's lunch. And yet we spend so much of our time trying to solve all of our own problems. And as things continue, there's a temptation not to look to Jesus, but to look to our own pleasures and our own will. We've got to be aware of a lack of trust. He might change my life but a lot of times we live our lives like we don't have to trust in him every single day number three what keeps people from following christ like they ought to an abundance of opinions an abundance of opinions look at verses 13 to 14 famous section of scripture 
When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus asked a perfectly good question. Who do people say that I am? I've been on this earth for a while. We've been in the midst of this public ministry. Uh, We're in the middle of a a three-and-a-half-year stint in which I'm here doing good works and helping people and teaching people and trying to show people who God is. Now, tell me what other people are saying about me. Tell me what they think that I am. Well, there are some, Jesus, that think you're like John the Baptist. You're a forerunner. You know, the people didn't doubt that John was a prophet. Matthew 7, or verse 11, excuse me, Matthew 11, verses 7 through 10. Jesus would go on to say John was a prophet, but yes, he was even more than a prophet. He wasn't wealthy. He wasn't weak, but he certainly wasn't the Messiah. John would establish that in John chapter 1. Some people think that Jesus was like Elijah. Jesus is a revolutionary He's the one who will stand up to kings. He's the one that will defiantly walk in the face of those Roman generals and he will spit in their face. Some people thought that Jesus was a revolutionary. The strong power of God like Elijah who prayed uh, that it might not rain, didn't rain on the earth for three and a half years, James chapter 5. Some people thought that Jesus was like Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of those prophets, he was known as the weeping prophet, that's his nickname, who was doom and gloom. And in fact, Jeremiah was not at all popular during his day. You go through and you read through the book of Jeremiah, you're going to find that that's the case. But what happened is Jeremiah's prophets, uh, prophets, uh, prophetic status, I guess is a good way to say that, Jeremiah's status as a prophet increased over time. To where people revered him and he was respected well after the fact. Some people thought that Jesus was a whole lot like that. Who do people say that I am, Jesus asks. If you were to go out and to the neighborhoods surrounding the Graver Road Church building and ask, who is Jesus or who do you say Jesus is? Can you imagine the answers that you might get about that? And the amount of opinions that there might be about that? You know... I think I've mentioned before, but our sweet neighbor across the street is a sweet little Jewish lady. And, you know, Catherine asked her one time, have you ever thought about Jesus? And she said, I believe he was a prophet. I believe he was a good man. But I've never thought any more about that after the fact. And there's people that will look at Jesus and say, yeah, we'll acknowledge that he's a prophet. You know, uh, the uh, Islamists, they believe that Jesus was a prophet. He wasn't a prophet like Muhammad. They believed that that was uh, the, the prophet, the, the, the one that, that God spoke through. Jesus is like Gandhi. Jesus is like Oprah. Jesus is like Dr. Phil. Had some good things to say, but never really thought anything else more about him. And sometimes people are so entrenched in their opinion about who Jesus was and what his mission was that they don't care to follow him to find out what the message is that will change their life substantially and change them from the inside out. Are we better than those people or have we just simply formed our own opinions about Jesus and said, I don't want to think anymore about that. I don't believe he's got a message to change my life. Some people will just be content with their opinions to think about Jesus in that way. Number four, what keeps people from following God's grace? A simple lack of following God's plan. 
finish out the context here before we get to our scripture. That This is all the introductory material, so I hope you appreciate that. <laughs> um, when Jesus came to this uh, region, verse 15, he talks to them. They say, uh, mention he's like John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He then says, verse 15, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Great answer, Simon. Excellent. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Circle the blessed in your Bible or in the tablet of your mind. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. I also say that you, uh, that, you, that you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Folks, this is some heavy, heavy subject matter. This is like the Gettysburg Address, Jesus uh, addressing right here about the kingdom and about the nature of his kingdom, and it's powerful, it's moving. But notice this next few verses about how they relate to what he's just said. We will go through these verses and say, yes, Christ only built one church, and he built it upon the truth that he is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. That's exactly right. Verse 20. He commanded his disciples they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, from the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Blessed Peter, blessed Simon Barjona, verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Blessed Peter is now Satan, Peter. <laughs> get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ... Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's been revealed by God. He offers this promise to Peter. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter, you're going to have the keys of the kingdom. You say, what does that mean? It's not when Peter gets to, or when we get to heaven, there's going to be Peter sitting there at, uh, at St. Peter's gates like, uh, uh, like some of the jokes and some of the depictions. But rather it is than Acts chapter 2, whose words do we have recorded when the gates of the kingdom begin to open? Yeah, Peter. Those promises, those things were given to Peter and to the 11, to the, to the apostles. And he says, Peter, this kingdom that you're going to have the keys of is going to be the power of God. There's going to be no way that the gates of Hades, the realm of the dead, is ever going to overpower it. What a wonderful thing. And as Jesus begins to take them aside and say, now this is the plan, I've got to go to the cross. This is the plan, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to die for the cause and for us to be, me to be able to establish this kingdom. Peter says, nuh-uh, not going to happen. Jesus, I'm not going to let this happen. In fact, when they came to arrest him, what happened? Peter was the first one to pull out his sword and he struck the servants of the high priest, he cut off his ear. Why did he do that? He's still trying to prevent the plan of God. He's not trying to follow the plan of God. What's revealed by God and promised by God in the power of God, Peter turns around and says, Jesus, 
No way that's going to happen to you. Folks, when we talk about accepting Jesus and trusting Jesus and following Jesus, it's about following Jesus all the way to where he's going. Please don't miss that point. When we talk about accepting Jesus and following Jesus and being disciples of Jesus, it's about following him to the finish of the course, to where he's going. It's not about picking up our cross and following him in the way we want to, in the way that makes us comfortable, in the way that, that gets us out of our comfort zone or whatever we think that that is. It's about simply walking in his footsteps. This is why he came. This is why he lived. This is what his mission is, is to come to the cross so that he can offer himself and so he can sacrifice himself so that, we're back to our subject, grace can be poured out on us. Now, the song we sing, Trust and Obey, but we never can prove the delights of his love until, how's it go? All on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows, the grace he gives for the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will finish it trust and obey we're too busy sometimes trying to amend the plan of Jesus trying to shape it so that we can be comfortable so that we won't have to sacrifice too much to follow him and we can try and omit things and we can try and overlook things and we can try and neglect things when what Christ wants us to understand and experience is the fullness of his grace that only comes by following him. Remember what the title was, as a band of crucified followers. Crucified. But what we believe is that we can substantially change Jesus' plan and still experience all the benefits of it. What's the difference? What's the answer? I don't want to let my pride get in the way of me following Jesus. I don't want to let men's opinions get in the way of following me Jesus. I don't want to get, let, uh, let my lack of understanding or my lack of trust get in the way of following Jesus. What's the answer? Folks, the answer is we have to go with him to the cross. To be crucified. Me. You. All of us. What does the end of the context say there in Matthew 16? Verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, famous statement, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life. Sounds like me. Said you got to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man had come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. And he finishes off by saying, Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What he just talked about back up in verses 16 through 18. Brothers and sisters, to have, to hold, to appreciate the grace of God in your life the way that Christ wants us to, you know what it's going to require of you and it's going to require of me? Crucifixion. Going to the cross. 
what Christ wants us to do is to follow in his footsteps every single day. Where are we going? We sing the songs, just lift your cross and follow close to me. John, or excuse me, Luke would say in Luke 9, 23, he who would come after me must deny himself, or excuse me, uh, must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow after me. What does it mean to truly follow him? Matthew 16, verses 24 through 28 talks about it. It means I have to deny myself. I have to take up my cross. I have to follow in his steps and walk in his steps and take his cross. And I choose to do that every single day. Now, practical, nitty-gritty. What does that look like? What does your cross look like? What's my cross look like? And we use this terminology sometimes. Oh, I have bad eyesight. That's just my little cross to bear. Is that what it looks like? Is a bad eyesight? Is that your cross to bear? Oh, you know, that person's just a thorn in my side. They're just my cross to bear. We use those things, those terms, and particularly things that we don't like or things that we don't agree with. You ever think about what your cross looks like? What it means for you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after Jesus? What does your cross look like? Let me give you just a few practically as we finish up this evening. What does your cross look like? It may look like a cross, and it probably does, of charity. Cross of charity. Jesus would say, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, John 15 and verse 13. Jesus would say in John chapter 13, verses 33 and 34, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You ever think about that cross that you pick up? Means that I have to behave lovingly towards people that I may even disagree with and I may have problems with, and I may just in my own will and my own selfish wants and wishes want to cast that part off of Christ's plan and say, well, I'm just going to avoid that person. They push all the wrong buttons. What Jesus and following him and picking up our cross means, every day we pick up that cross and we follow in the footsteps of Jesus who behaved lovingly towards everybody, even those miserable scribes and Pharisees that wanted him dead. Even the people who called names at him and and, and cast him down and, and tried to pick up stones to throw at him. He behaved lovingly towards those people who demanded before Pilate, you let Barabbas go, you let that murderer go. We want the one who claims to be the son of God crucified. Jesus behaved lovingly because he died for those people. And we're going to stop and we're going to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but I'm not going to follow you that far in order to be loving towards people that might mistreat me or might get on my nerves or might, might cast me down or might uh, mistreat me. I've got to behave lovingly. To some, it would be like dying to say I've got to love my neighbor as myself. That's what Jesus demands. You want to pick up your cross and follow after him. We can't pick and choose the people that we love 
and who are recipients of our love. It's a cross of charity. It's a cross of humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, even to death on the cross. There's our cross again. How humble was Jesus? He was humble enough to let sinful men take him and do despicable things to him and to nail the innocent son of God upon that cross. What does your cross look like? Your cross, if you're following in the footsteps of Jesus, looks like a cross of humility. It means I can't behave in a haughty mindset towards somebody else. I can't behave in an arrogant, puffed-up way. Me dying to myself means that I have to look with eyes of humility, with eyes of Jesus, because as I'm following Jesus, I'm looking at his footsteps and saying, this is a humble path. This is not a path for self-aggrandizement. It's not a path for me to look and say, how great I am. But it's following and saying how great he is. For some, it would be like dying to not talk about how good they are at any given subject. For some, it would be like dying to not talk about how wonderful that brand new several thousand dollar car is that they are parking and driving in their driveway. To not talk about the greatness of their material goods. For some, it would be like dying to humble themselves. And have to think more of others than they think of themselves. You choose this. I choose this. Every day we pick up our cross and we follow after him because it's a cross of humility. Number three, band of crucified followers. That's us. It's a cross of integrity. It's in a cross of integrity. John 18, verse 38 as Pilate, you look at the declarations of Pilate, it's amazing that he, before this Jewish audience that wanted him dead, time and time, examination after examination, look at how many times Pilate vindicated Jesus. Look at the voices that vindicated Jesus at his trial. Pilate brings him out and says, I am bringing him out so that you know I find no fault in him. Our cross is a cross of character. Our cross is a cross of integrity. For some, it would be like dying to cut out lying out of their vocabulary, out of their daily speech. To say, I'm going to follow Ephesians chapter 4 and talking about being a person who speaks truth with my neighbor. Put away lying, speak truth. Oh, that's like dying. Don't you know that I've developed this pattern of speech for years and years and years and, and lying just, uh, just comes natural to me. I'm so good at it. I don't want my kids to be good at lying. I don't want to be known as a person who's good at lying. But following in the footsteps of Jesus means we take off some things so that we can pick up our cross and we can follow faithfully after him so that we can be people who are known as people of our word, people of integrity. Oh, but it would be like dying for me to actually keep my word. 
That's what Jesus demands. That's what picking up your cross means. That's who we are as people who are beneficiaries of the unmerited favor, the grace that we didn't deserve. But the lifestyle that we choose because of the greatness of that grace. It's a cross of humility. It's a cross of integrity. It is a cross of loyalty. It's a cross of loyalty. Jesus, as a boy, 12 years old, went with his parents to Jerusalem. You know the old account that how it was that he, when his parents began to return, he was not among them. And when they finally found him after searching for three days, you remember what he said to them? Why were you searching for me? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus says, I'm loyal to my heavenly father. Are we loyal to our heavenly father? Are we loyal to him enough to pick up our cross and say, I'm going to tune in and I'm going to watch the live stream on Sunday evening. When I go on vacation with my kids, taking up my cross means we're going to find a local congregation of believers and go and encourage and be encouraged by being with God's people together. Is that hard? It may be, depending on where you go to vacation. Does that mean that we're loyal and we're letting our loyalty to God be first? Jesus would ask in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? Your loyalties betray you. What he wants more than anything else is that we be people who are loyal to our heavenly father. Oh, it would be like dying if I had to cancel my sporting activities in order to be there on Wednesday night. What does the Lord demand? What does the Lord want? He wants your loyalty if we're going to be people who are crucified and who follow in his footsteps. Jesus wants our lives to be lives of purity. Every day we take up the cross when we decide to put down the things that might trip us up. Internet, for free in most cases. Cell phones, instant access to everything. And yet we find that pornography enslaves more people. And a lack of purity of heart is so rare. What Christ wants us to do is to live lives of purity and live lives of holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. We're not going to take the time to look at it, but you can go look at it and see what Christ calls us to as a life to where we treat our vessel and we take care of it in honor and sanctification, purity. To not let anything defile it. it means denying self. That means taking up our cross and following him and not becoming enslaved to those things. Oh, for some it would be like dying to say, you know what, I've got a pornography problem. I need to destroy my phone. I need to limit access to the things that I can look at and uh, take care of on the web. Taking up the cross means difficult decisions. It's a cross of tenacity, just to keep it nicely alliterated. Tenacity. Keep at itness, if you like. A cross of keep at itness. Deny self, take up the cross daily. 
That means when you go to bed at night and you lay down and you go to sleep, that cross is sitting there. That's a time that it doesn't seem like you have to bear that cross. But when you wake up every single morning, there it is. And every day I have the choice to look at that cross and say, today I'm going to take up this cross and I'm going to follow after my Jesus one more time, one more day. I'm going to renew my mind according to the image of the one that created me. I'm going to follow after him every day. I make that choice because I love his grace. I'm part of the church, the band of crucified followers who are dedicated to being faithful till death. Because one day, Jesus says, Revelation 2 verse 10, we're going to lay down that cross and we're going to pick up our crown. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Folks, please understand, this is not an easy course. And you say, why in the world would somebody do... Why would, why would you take that instrument of torture and death and, 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 and where people don't understand and just like Jesus, they're going to be hurling insults and, 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 and not understanding and, and casting reproach upon us. Why would anybody do that hard thing of taking up that cross? Let me illustrate it like this. The old painter Renoir, he was, well, I mean, famous in his day, but now as he's um, uh, gone, his paintings have become Works, works of art, literally. Um, as he was older, Renoir was paralyzed by arthritis. He had a dear friend uh, of his named Matisse, uh, and as Matisse, his friend, watched Renoir in his age and his, his, his uh, arthritis begin to start cr- uh, painting, what would happen is, is that his hands would hurt so bad that he would just literally drop the brush. And Matisse, it, was, uh, it's, it said, it came along and said, Renoir, why in the world would you continue to paint? Master, don't you know that you're already so well recognized? And don't you know you're, you've already done so much? Why can't you be pleased? Renoir's famous answer was this. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. The pain passes. But the beauty remains. What Jesus calls us to in the cross, yes, it's difficult. Folks, but we take up difficult things. People do difficult things all the time because they understand this principle of pain passing, but beauty remains. I've got a fascination with mountain climbing. I watched a video not too long ago about uh, climbers climbing K2 with no, uh, no, no masks, with no oxygen. Second highest peak in the world next to Everest. And these people decided to acclimate to, uh, to high levels and high altitudes. And as they got up there on the, on the side of the mountain, this guy says, I think my cornea is frozen. Literally, <laughs> he said, my cornea is just frozen. But as they're standing there, they look out and survey what the height of the mountain has to do. Grueling, grueling hikes. They said, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this wonderful? The life that Jesus calls us to in picking up our cross and appreciating his grace is, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's grueling. Yes, sometimes you want to throw that cross down and say, I want to go do something else. There's plenty of encouragement in the New Testament for that type of attitude. Begin with the book of Hebrews. But understanding, brothers and sisters, that our appreciation of the grace of Christ and the beauty of heaven is going to come in that final day when the trumpet's going to sound 
when the sky is going to be removed, rolled back like a scroll, when our Lord's going to come, and we're going to be able to put that cross down and experience the beauty of what he's got waiting for us. We have the benefit of an abundant life here and now, but that abundant life is not going to come easy. It's not going to be something that just falls in our lap. It's something that involves us pursuing as crucified followers and following in the steps of Christ every single day. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. Thank you for your attention this evening.